Good evening, everybody. Welcome to St. Paul's Cathedral. Welcome to this third in our series of discussions on the big issues. And tonight we will be talking about death. Um, before we get into the nitty-gritty, can I ask um, if we just go through how we do questions here? There's a particular way we do them. Uh, you should have with you um, some pieces of paper. And as um, our contributors contribute, uh, could you just make notes of, of what you want to ask them and then hold them above your head and even do that, happy to do that while the, um, the, the, the discussions and the, the contributions are going on. And they will be collected by the wandsmen and they'll be taken to the back to a station over there and by the magic of technology written into a computer and it'll appear on my screen over here. And then what I do is I try and weave the questions that you ask into the discussion that we're having. So those questions will be taken up uh, and I will attempt to get as many questions as possible into this discussion that we have. Um, uh, and we start our discussion at about, at about seven o'clock. Uh, the contract we have is we will end uh, promptly at eight and we will end at eight o'clock, after which um, Professor Howass is happy to um, sign some books uh, at the back for just a few minutes. We're going to take a collection, and the collection will be for Helen House. Um, so please, and uh, perhaps you'd like to say just, when you start, just a little bit about Helen House so people know what we're taking money for, because then we can boost the collection a little bit that way. Um, so I'm sure that'll happen. Stanley Howass is Professor of Theological Ethics at Duke Divinity School. Rowan Williams called him one of the greatest Christian minds of our time, and Time magazine has named him America's best theologian, to which his response was that best is not a theological category. <laughs> and I said to him in the vestry, if I was Time magazine, I would have said, yes, but gratitude is. <laughs> He has written and spoken extensively on the idea and reality of a good death, and his numerous books include Naming the Silence, God Medicine and the Problem of Suffering, Suffering Presence, and Hannah's Child, many great books. Welcome to you. Thank you. Sister Frances Dominica is the founder of the Children's Hospice Movement. Helen House, the world's first children's hospice, sprang from her friendship with the parents of a seriously ill girl called Helen and their experience of caring for her full-time to the end of her life. Helen House opened in 1982 and Douglas House for teenagers and young people followed in 2004. Sister Frances remains personally involved in the two hospice houses, which provide respite and end-of-life care for children and young adults with life-shortening conditions, as well as support and friendship for the whole family. She's a sister of the Anglican Order of All, All Saints Sisters of the Poor, an honorary fellow of the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health, and a fellow of the Royal College of Nursing. And uh, you have a book out as well, which is Just My Reflection, um, which is a combination of, of practical advice for people who've lost a child and prayers and readings and, and... Thank you and welcome Sister Frances Dominica.
Thank you very much, Giles. I think you've done a splendid introduction to Helen House, actually. But just to tell you very briefly, it did spring from a friendship with a family whose two-year-old daughter was critically ill following surgery for a brain tumour. After six months in hospital, during which time I got to know the family well, her parents were told there was no hope of recovery. And so they took her home to care for her there. Her baby sister was just a month old. So they had a newborn child and a little three-year-old who needed 24-hour care 365 days a year. And after a few weeks, I was so concerned about their exhaustion, not just physical exhaustion, but also the exhaustion of the long drawn out and unresolvable grief that I plucked up courage one day and asked if they would trust me enough to lend her to me sometimes. And that was how it began. It was about friendship. It was about practical help, having to st Helen to stay with me for a few days and a few nights so her parents could catch up on sleep, focus on the other children, have a holiday, have flu, do the sorts of things that most of us can take for granted most of the time. And from that friendship, an idea grew that perhaps we could extend what we were able to do for Helen to other very sick children with life-shortening conditions and their families. And Helen's parents were the most important people in helping to decide how that place should be. The model was home, both architecturally and in ethos. It was an attempt at a sort of extended family in a culture where the extended family has almost ceased to exist. It had to be small, not institutional, and the children would be at home with their families most of the time, just as Helen was, but would come to us with or without their families, their choice, whenever they needed a break. And then, with children with often genetic illnesses living much longer than they once did, we realized there was a great need for a place on similar lines, but for young adults, and that's Douglas House, which welcomes people between 16 and 35 or 40. On the subject of death, particularly the death of children, I have to start by saying that I've got fewer answers to the big questions than I had 30 years ago. It seems to me there are so many questions and so few answers. And as a 10-year-old once said to me, you see, God has the answers, we have the questions, but only after we're dead will he give us the answers. And I'm quite content with that. My background is nursing. And after I entered our community in 1966, I found myself nursing old people, which was a new experience, my area of specialization being pediatrics. One of the greatest privileges of my life was sitting by the bedside of a 92-year-old as she gently took her last breaths. Her father had been a priest. She had never married. She had worked all her life for the church in different ways. She was a person of very great dignity and beauty. She'd had a very full life. And towards the end, 
She said, it's enough. Now I am longing for the end and a new beginning. And she died peacefully and gently in her own bed in our residential home for the elderly while I held her hand. And as she took her last breath, my mind wondered to how it must have been when she took her first breath. What an amazing, beautiful experience it was for me. <clears throat> On the 20th of December last year, there was a head-on car crash in Oxford. In the car, one of the cars, was a couple with their 14-month-old baby. In the other car was one elderly lady. Following the accident, the mother and the little child were critically ill, and the mother died on Christmas Eve. The little boy survived initially and was desperately sick, but outwardly looked absolutely perfect. His injuries were to his brain. He came to us in January for what is described as compassionate extubation. He would no longer be ventilated, and it was expected that he would die. His father came with him, of course. But he didn't die then. He was deeply unconscious, but as the days went by, his level of consciousness rose, and we began to see little signs of life in him. We were deeply moved when his father put two very beautiful reproductions of old masters on the wall in his room in Helen House. One was of the nativity and one was of the crucifixion. Underneath these paintings, he wrote this. In this room rests my son Joseph. On the 20th of December, he fell between the cracks of the living and the dead. Here he lies in peace and suffering, cruelly robbed of both his life and his death. I would like you to treat him with kindness and respect, but also, to the extent that you can bear it, with quiet awe and fear. This man had told us he was an agnostic. He went on, you will find it is easy to imagine and to treat him as if he is a poorly little baby to be entertained or soothed or nurtured with soft words and caresses. Perhaps you find yourself thinking that, for all we know, there is still a life and mind in there behind the inert facade, or when that facade becomes animated with apparent distress, it may now seem easier to treat him as a broken brain in a perfect yet useless body, a receptacle of meaningless 
cerebral irritations. What I believe is much harder, perhaps unbearable, is to acknowledge how both of these evade so much of the truth about him, that he is so outwardly beautiful, yet so inwardly destroyed, that he is the same boy he was before, yet utterly different, that he is alive, yet has no life, that he is dead, but has no rest, insensate, yet suffering. On this board I have placed two images of the birth and death of Jesus. They confront us with some of the paradoxes of that particular faith, that God could be born into time and space as a helpless child, and that unthinking, unthinkably he could be put to death on a cross in agony. In the manger there, is it God or man? On the cross there, is he alive or dead? Those around him, as they get closer to him, keep a quiet, contemplative, dumbstruck vigil. They contemplate him as something unthinkable, awesome, terrible, wonderful. I do not ask you to treat my son as a god, but I would like you to treat this room as a holy place, to approach him quietly with respect and fear, to consider him in quiet contemplation, to let yourself be touched by him, not as a poorly baby to be nursed, not as a broken mechanism to be ignored, but as a sight of the terrible and the lovely. Thank you. As the days and the weeks went by, the little boy became more and more alive. We knew that he would never be able to speak, that he was paralyzed down one side, but we also knew that his mind was intact and he could express delight as well as distress. My abiding memory is of him in his tiny new wheelchair in the playroom when the golden Labrador Pat Dog came into the playroom and before we knew it the two of them were nose to nose in rapt attention one to the other and the delight of dog and boy was something I shall never forget. The weeks went by and then his condition began to deteriorate and he died at the beginning of April. During those months, father and son had become so close. We adored that little boy, but nothing to the love of father from son. He died peacefully 
many people wondering if anything could have been done to prolong his life. So many questions, so few answers. I want to end this part of my offering by telling you about a little boy I first met many years ago. He was 10. He could be quite a little brat. I was usually at the wrong end of his water pistol. And then one day he said to me, can we have a serious talk? He was from a Roman Catholic family where they often talked about God and the kingdom and life and death. And what he said to me was, he was 10, remember, when I was young, my mum told me about my illness and things, and she told me one day I might die. And I have to say, when she first told me, I was a bit afraid. But I've had time to think about it now, and I'm not afraid anymore. I don't think about it much, he said, but when I talk to God, we have a really good talk about it. My way to pray, he said, is to have an open heart to him. And then you get the open answer back, don't you? He said, I think of my body as my reflection. It's how you recognize me for who I am. But when I die, I will leave my reflection behind and it will fade because I won't need it anymore. But the real me won't die. The real me will go to a very special place. It's like this, he said. You're standing in an old familiar place and someone comes up to you and says, shut your eyes, I've got a surprise for you. So you shut your eyes and they lead you forward and then they say, open, surprise. And you open your eyes and you look around and it's so incredible. You can't begin to describe it. And then you look around a bit more and gradually you begin to realize it's familiar. You've been here before. Yes, he said. You've come home. Because that's what heaven is. It's your real home. You have to go back to where you belong. He said, at the moment when I die, I believe Jesus will be standing right beside me with his arms outstretched, ready, waiting to take me to his father in his heavenly kingdom. Imagine, he said, the sheer excitement of meeting him for the first time. And there's that banquet, and it'll be me and God sitting by, side by side, sharing the banquet. There's so much to look forward to, living or dying. I know my family will be very sad, but I've asked God to help them, and I've asked God if I can help him to help them. We saw a lot of each other after that. And then one day, his mother telephoned me from home and said, can you come? He's very sick. And so I went, and he was sitting there, not looking at all as I had normally seen him, looking very sad. And in my naivety, I said to him, what's the matter? It's all right. All the things you've talked about so many times, you do really believe, don't you? And he said, yes, yes. But I love my family, I love my home, I love life so much. Do I have to die now 
his last two days were pretty good agony because he refused the medication that could have eased his distress because he knew his parents believed that that would hasten the end. And he died in pain and in distress. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And before that, if it is your will, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And in his dying, he taught me at least as much as he had taught me in earlier days about his faith, his belief, his love for God and God's love for him. Here was the dereliction. Here was the agony. I think perhaps it's good to end there. But maybe we can return to that at a later stage this evening. Thank you. Thank you. I'm obviously an American, and I don't know how my perceptions of death in America will translate into your world. But all I can do is say what I perceive to be going on. When I lecture to lay audiences, that is, people who are not immediately involved in medicine, because that's the only laity that makes any difference today, I ask them how they want to die. I always get the same answers. People want to die in their sleep, quickly, painlessly, and without being a burden. They don't want to be a burden because they don't trust their children. They want to die quickly, painlessly, and in their sleep because when they die, they do not want to know they are dying. So then they ask physicians to keep them alive to the point that when they die, they don't have to know they're dying, and then they get to blame physicians for keeping them alive to no point. This is a wonderful double-bind game that's uh, played out endlessly. Um, it's very interesting to reflect on how different that is than the church's tradition. In the great litany to this day, we pray, save us from a sudden death. Now, what we want, that is, to die in a way we do not have to know we're dying, that's what they feared in the Middle Ages. Namely, they feared they would die of a sudden death. Why did they fear that they would die of a sudden death? Because if they died of a sudden death, it might mean they did not have time to reconcile themselves with their family, their enemies, which of course was their family, and most importantly, God. Because what they feared was not death, but God. Now we just fear death. Now, I think that that's not accidental that we fear death more than we fear God. Because 
I say the project of modernity is to produce a people who believe they should have no story except the story they chose when they had no story. If you don't believe that's your story, I can, I can illustrate it this way. You, do you think you ought to be held responsible for decisions you made when you did not know what you were doing? No, you do not believe you should help be held responsible for decisions you made when you did not know what you were doing. Um, and of course, um, um, what that does is make uh, unintelligible marriage. Um, I mean, how could you possibly know what you did when you promised lifelong monogamous fidelity? That's the reason why the church asks you to have your marriages witnessed uh, before the congregation because we're going to hold you responsible for decisions you made and promises you made when you did not know what you were doing. Now, but the, um, uh, uh, once you produce a people who believe they should have no story except the story they chose when they had no story, then the question is, is how do you get cooperation between such people um, under, under um, uh, conditions where there is no goods in common? That script was written by Hobbes, and Hobbes said the way you get cooperation between people who have no shared um, goods other than the fear of death. So the fear of death now becomes the way we get cooperation between people who believe they should have no story except the story they chose when they had no, no story. What we share in common is the fear of death. Accordingly, medicine has become the legitimating institution for securing a people to think that the government that gives us the best medicine is also going to be the most legitimate government. Um, that way um, we can enter into a conspiracy with one another hoping we can produce a medicine that hopefully can get us out of life alive. This is, uh, in America we are now spending between 16 and 17 percent of the gross national product on crisis care medicine. Um, and of course, crisis care medicine has very little to do with the, uh, with the health and length of life of the population. I mean, if you want to lengthen uh, the life of the population, you're more likely to be concerned more with windows, sanitation, and good nutrition. Crisis care medicine will not keep the population alive that much longer. But we now think that uh, medicine will be the way that we can um, uh, lengthen our lives. 16 to 17 percent is going to crisis care medicine, and 60 percent of that is going to people in their last year of life. Um, you don't, of course, know that it's their last year of life when you start giving them that kind of care. But then, we act, then you get the adverse because you've gotten good at lengthening dying, the dying process. Um, and I think there's a very important distinction between um, uh, putting to death and not lengthening the dying process. Um, you don't have to do everything you can do. But 
not able to deal with that um, uh, with knowing how to say when enough is enough, we then get the obverse view of, in America of the Jack Kevorkians, a, a pathologist, of course, and a pathologist is someone who always wants his patients dead. Um, uh, and he then comes in and offers compassionate assisted dying because now compassion looks like I'm going to save you from your own fear of death by putting you to death. Those are the kinds of very strange trade-offs we're getting within the kind of social orders in which we find ourselves. Now, it's quite interesting, therefore, to think um, of how um, Christians have traditionally had an alternative to that way of life, namely the way of life determined by you should have no story except the story you chose when you had no story. Because we as Christians believe we do not get to make up our lives, but that we receive our lives as a gift. Our, that's not like we exist and then we receive a gift, but life itself is a gift. And we must learn to receive it without regret. Now, as part of receiving your life as gift, we rightly understand that death is enemy. Death is an enemy of our lives. It is part of what is the result of our sin. But also, death, in an interesting way, is a gift. Augustine even thought to raise the question, if we had not sinned, sinned, would we have died? And he said, since God wants us to be God's friends and we are finite, there must have been some kind, there must be some kind of transition which would make us God's friend in a way that might be something like death. And in that sense, what we see is death makes life valuable. But exactly, I mean, if you didn't die, you would have, life would just be one damn thing after another. But exactly, death creates an economy that gives our life valuable texture. And exactly because our lives have valuable textures, it means also we rightly see death as an enemy. Because exactly what we rightly fear about death is the loneliness it can suggest is our destiny. But as Christians, that loneliness is defied exactly because we have been baptized into the life and death of Jesus Christ. Thereby, that baptism determines our living and our dying in a way that we do not have to fear death 
in particular by being able, as Sister Frances obviously is, to be present in death, thereby not abandoning those who are to die by thinking that the only way to be with them is to surround them with technology. So Christian death needs to be commensurate with our baptisms in a way that our lives have been lived confronting the death of our friends and those that we love, refusing to abandon them in their dying by saying, I will be with you because I know God is with me and God will be with you. So Christians, the Christian way of death is a profound challenge to the way of death of the wider society based on the presumption that somehow we have to get out of life alive. Christians do not have to get out of life alive because we know our destiny has been set through our baptisms into the love of God. Thank you. Can we show our appreciation to both our speakers? <clears throat> Um, so if you particularly start to scribble your questions now and they start to come up on the screen. Um, one of the cruelest questions I've ever heard asked on um, an interview was um, in the very large documentary Shoah um, about the Holocaust. And there's the, the interviewer there, this French guy called Claude Landsman. And um, he's interviewing uh, this Holocaust survivor. And uh, he says very directly to this person at one point um, who's been talking about the most horrendous things. He says, why are you smiling? Uh, it was his way of coping, but it was, a, it was a question that cut. And there's a question here that reminds me so much of that, and it's directed at you. And it says, Sister Francis, how do you manage to speak without crying? There are plenty of tears, uh, but somehow um, in the huge privilege, and I do emphasize that, the huge privilege of walking the walk with many families who are experiencing perhaps the worst thing anybody can experience, the death of their child. It isn't all grief. The grief is indescribable. I can't, I can't even begin. But isn't it Khalil Gibran in The Prophet who says, inasmuch as there is a hollow, as grief, sorrow, creates a hollow in your being, so you become capable of containing the same amount of joy. And somehow the families communicate this, this experience of all your sensitivities being heightened and it's a little bit catching <laughs> which is why I say it, it is a privilege and friendships go very deep very quickly and it's I guess it's the little children who've taught me to think of time in terms of depth rather than length 
You can go deep into the present moment. And small children, if, if they're free of pain and they're with people they trust, they have this ability mostly to live in the present moment, whereas we foolish grown-ups spend so much of our time ever living in the past or living in the future with nostalgia, guilt, regret, longing, fear, anticipation. And we lose God's gift to us, which is in the present moment. And I guess um, if the last 28, 30 years have taught me anything, it's about trying to, trying to be in the present moment and asking God to ensure that I am the right person in the right place at the right time, um, which is a very indirect way of saying why I didn't weep while I was speaking. Um, I guess I chose the stories carefully because uh, they have very deep meaning and significance for me, but also I'm very, I'm very familiar with them, and I guess I've done my weeping for, the, for them. Do you want to say anything about that, Sam? I think it's um, quite interesting why the death of children seems to challenge our deepest um, convictions in a way even our own deaths do not. And it's quite understandable because we think that um, they um, shouldn't have to suffer. But life is to be born suffering. And I sometimes think that oftentimes, if you are in a neonatal unit and some of the, quote, care children are put through to try to give them a life, if you were not in a neonatal unit, you would call it torture. Why is it we're so desperate to make sure our children live? I think it's because we think they haven't had a life. But as Sister Francis suggests, if God has called each of us into being. They've had a life. Of course, it's a great sadness that they die. And we rightly want for them to live and to use the great gifts that we have discovered to sustain their life through the office of medicine. But to know how, I mean, if you read the baptismal liturgy, you might want to think twice about baptizing children. And that's what they often are born into. And we can receive their deaths as we receive our own deaths. 
with a confidence that they are God's children. And we do not have to think that their deaths are an overwhelming tragedy that makes life meaningless. I think we find it so very difficult to see um, life in the context of eternal life, don't we? It's, it's the conflict between time and eternity. And um, of course, the grief of loss is sometimes literally unbearable. We're the ones left behind so far. It'll be one, our turn one day to, to be the ones who leave others behind. But if we really believe that there is eternal life, quite different from time, then what is it that makes us cling to life so, so tight? And St. Paul, in his derisory way, has those wonderful words, if for this life only we have hoped, we of all people are most to be pitied. That's strong, isn't it? You know? Um, maybe we can get on a little bit later to the whole, the whole thing of the resurrection, because I think that's I mean, I think we're plunging crucial. right into it now, actually, yeah. aren't we? And I've, there's lots of... I, I have, there's, there's people... Um, there's a lot of people asking um, about... Well, the question is this. I'll read it off the screen. How can we show or have hope if we don't believe in God or life after death? And, and I think there's other stuff here, which is that there were pe people who would call themselves Christians of some sort, but would have a very muddy view of what life after death might mean. Be more comfortable with your talk of eternity, perhaps, than than something more literal, but... Um... Yeah. I mean, I think that the greatest thing that happened to creation ever was the incarnation, when God actually became man. I remember years ago doing a school assembly with the newly-fledged curate in our local primary school. And he told... Uh, he, he asked the children... It was a few days before they broke up for Christmas. And he said, Who knows what appeared above the stable on Christmas night. And all the hands went up. Star. And then he said, right, now who can be clever enough to spell star backwards? Well, that took a bit longer. But eventually a nine-year-old said, rats. And he said, yes, that's Christmas. God in the highest heaven amongst the stars came down into a grotty stable and there were probably rats running around, as well as the ox and the ass and all those nice, cuddly things. Rats. Because it was really earthy, really basic. God actually taking human flesh. It's incredible. Unbelievable, sometimes. And not content with that and with limiting himself just a few people in a few square miles. I mean, if I were God, I'd have done it so differently. I'd have waited for jet travel and the mass media and all that to proclaim the message of the love of God and the salvation of humankind and all that goes with that. But God didn't. 
And it seems that self-limitation was a ver the very essence of the incarnation. But God lived among us. God had friends and family. And then he died a very cruel death. But he'd said so many things to them. I go before you to prepare a place for you that where I am you may be also. If I don't go, the Holy Spirit can't come to you. I'm with you to the end of time. And I'm always grateful to Thomas, you know, doubting Thomas. Unless I can see the print that the nails have made, unless I can put my hand in his side, I shall not believe. And Jesus comes back a second time into the room where the apostles are and he says, peace be with you. And then he turns to Thomas and he says, all right then, reach out your hand. Put, put your finger in the print that the nails have made. Put your hand in my side. Doubt no longer, but believe. And Thomas says, my Lord and my God. And so many other wonderful resurrection stories told by eyewitnesses. No ordinary ghost cooks fish on a charcoal fire on the shore, on the beach, you know, for breakfast. This is extraordinary. This is exceptional. This is God made man. God who brought divinity into humanity and who then takes humanity back into divinity. It's an incredible concept. And this life is such a tiny part of it. I, um, um, I think the, I don't um, recommend speculation about eternal life. I recommend exactly what Sister Frances just did to direct attention to the incarnation. Um, because what I, I think oftentimes the language of uh, eternality presupposes that the obverse is timelessness. And if God is in Christ, God is more timeful than we are. So timefulness is not, I mean, too oftentimes Platonism has seized that contrast between eternity and time. And our God defies that dualism because God is more timeful than we are. And that makes it possible for us to have extraordinary hope in God's refusal to let us deny who we are. And therefore makes possible our hope in the life with God as God's friends. I don't know that we need to say more than that. People want to, don't they? They feel they want to, I mean, I, the sort of demythologizing um, certain views of, of heaven that people have had before as a way of trying to make it believable for them. Um, that whole process of demythologizing, which also somehow doesn't necessarily make it more believable for them. Right. 
Yeah, when my father died, um, my uh, wife and I were in Egypt, and so I had a week to think about the service. And at that time, um, my father and, and I had been raised a Methodist, and um, I thought we did about as well as we Methodists could do. Um, um, we had, um, I preached, and we had a Eucharistic celebration, and my father was welcomed into the communion of saints. And I hadn't really, <coughs> my father uh, wanted to be cremated, and we had to wait a couple of days uh, for the cremation, and I really hadn't thought of the internment. And the local Methodist pastor um, um, said that he would do the internment. Uh, I need to be clear, I'm not ordained. I, I'm, I'm a layperson. And um, uh, so we were at the, um, um, the burial, um, uh, and um, he read a poem that said my father had not really died. He had just passed over, and now my mother had someone that was immediately present in a way uh, that um, daddy had not really died. I wanted to kill him. My mother loved it. <laughs> I, uh, um, I, uh, <laughs> and, and those are the kind of sentimentalities that we have to fight constantly. And I think it has everything to do with uh, how we bury one another. I think the funeral is one of the most important um, uh, liturgies that we have. And one of the other, I mean, how often have you heard sermons about how we are to be trained to die? I mean, one of the great problems is, is we never see anymore anyone dying. And, and I mean, one of the great privileges of being a priest today is that you are invited to be with people as they die. And that's great training ground for you learning how to die. Partly exactly to the extent that we've isolated death away from uh, the home. Um, I, I don't have much use for the distinction between ordinary and extraordinary means, but if you want it, just think of an extraordinary means as when you no longer can die where you've lived. Uh, and, uh, and to be surrounded by people who you've lived with is a part of how we give one another our death in the hopes that we can learn to die. Because all of life is determined by training <laughs> and we need to be trained to die just like we need to be trained to um, uh, love one another just like we need to be trained in any significant craft or trade. Uh, one of the, in America, um, there was a sociologist named um, uh, Kubler-Ross who wrote a book on death and dying in which she had been in cancer wards uh, and she thought that she had discovered that people go through stages of dying. 
uh, you start off with denial. No, it's not, it's not, I'm really not dying. Then you get angry. How could this happen to me? Then you go through bargaining. Okay, God, if you just will let me uh, live, I'll never think about that again. Are, um, and finally, people go into allegedly quite acceptance. Now, um, and so then you developed a whole group of people called thanatologists that wandered around hospitals trying to help people die better than they've lived. Now, I mean, you know, if you've lived a crappy life, you ought to die a crappy death. I mean, that's, that's the way it works. I mean, it's just like, you know, if you've, if you've got a crappy relationship, Las Vegas is a good place to be married. The, uh, <laughs> So, uh, what, what, that, what, I, what I regard that kind, I mean, and peop, the thanatologists would say, oh no, you're not, you can't die yet, you're still angry, you've got to go to acceptance, you know. I mean, that, that's an attempt, uh, that's a kind of secular attempt to get a hold on death and dying that um, uh, is trying to make up for the fact that as Christians, we're not giving one another our deaths in a way that we have, or we are enabled to die appropriate to how we've lived with our baptisms. And that that, I think, is one of the great challenges before us today, to help each other know how to die. Uh, um, Henry Scott Holland, who was uh, associated with the cathedral for a while, was, I think, misunderstood when he spoke death is nothing at all, I've only slipped away into the next room. But we do hear that a lot at funerals. What's your reaction when you hear death is nothing at all? Well, if we could just not use that first line, the rest is absolutely fine. But death is something tremendous. I mean, it's, it, it isn't nothing at all. But it was so unfair because, um, as we were saying earlier, it was taken out of context. It'd be interesting to hear what the context was. Um, oh, you've put me on the spot now. So it is um, the king, as I understand it, is lying in state. Uh, it's in the middle of a sermon, it's not a poem. And the king is lying in state, having died. And uh, he is in this sermon, as I recall it, remembering, passing by the king. And he says, it's almost as if the body is saying to me, death is nothing at all, I've only slipped away into the next room. I am I, you are you, whatever we were to each other, that we are still. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I, I don't like saying it, but I'm asked to say it all the time. It's, well, have been. It, it, I can understand why people are drawn to it, because so much of it is, is, is just what one would want, if we could just eliminate that first line. <laughs> Perhaps you talk a little bit about uh, the avoidance of death some more um, and how that works pastorally. Um, I, I, um, I had a brother who died in a cot death, uh, Jonathan, when he was 10 months and he died before I was born. But um, my mum talks very, uh, she talks quite a lot still about uh, remembering people's reaction to her after it happened and how people didn't know what to say, as a quote, and I don't want to upset you, as mm. another quote. And because of all that load of stuff, they'd avoid her mm. like the plague. And she really remembers people in the supermarket, you know, going down the other aisle mm. because they were afraid of going up the aisle to see my mum because they didn't know what mm. to say. Mm. And I've always, you know, I've always told my, 
my family or anybody who listen say anything <laughs> rather than nothing. I don't know whether that's good advice. Even if it's, even if you get it wrong, it's better than the avoidance stuff. Yeah. I don't know if you've got advice to people in those situations. Um, well, it does take courage, but but even if all you say is "How are you?" and you really mean it, um, sometimes that will bring forth hours of 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 the answer to how are you. Um, but of course what we have to remember is that grief is irrational and unreasonable and untidy and there's no order about grief. Uh, and just sitting there absorbing the answer to how are you can can be hard. But it, it's, it's um, I think it's not for nothing. We were given two ears and only one mouth, you know shut up most of the time, but, but be there. Um, and a friend of ours who, um, whose little boy died with us, and previously she'd had a, a baby girl who had died in a cot death. And a year after the second child died, she overdosed and was found in time and, and so on. And she said to us afterwards, um, it was this loneliness, it was that people avoided her. When she went to collect the two surviving children from school, people scattered as if she'd got two heads or leprosy or something. And it became so lonely and she said, I know how hard it is for people, but if only they'd just smile at me or say, touch my arm, give me a hug would be wonderful. Or what happened to that friend who used sometimes to ring the doorbell on the way back from shopping and say, have you got the kettle on? Or the couple who used occasionally to come in for a drink after supper. They don't seem to be around anymore. And she said, all I want is somebody to come and sit down at my kitchen table and say, okay, how are you? And she said, if they've got two or three hours to spare, I'll tell them. And at the end of it all, I'll feel so much better and my friend will feel so much worse. And if they come back the next week, it'll be just as bad, and the next, and the next. And of course, when your child dies, you don't ever get over it. But you do eventually, I believe, adjust to what one father described as a different kind of normal. And gradually, the balance between joy and sorrow changes. But just when you think you're doing really well, you perhaps smell something, whether it's um, a flower or the soap powder in the supermarket or something, and suddenly the tears are just cascading down your face. And it may be three, four, five years after the person you love had died. There's a deep, deep scar. Is this pastoral thing linked in to the sort of broader avoidance of death? I think so. I mean, I don't want to pass on, I want to die. And I want people to say, he's dead. Um, um, I, I remember one of my earliest memories as I was a kid. I was raised in a little town in Texas named Pleasant Mound. And um, um, this is a white frame Methodist church. And we were all told as, as children we were to love Dad Haggard. Dad Haggard was in his 90s and he had one of those old hearing aids where he held it up to listen to the preacher. And we were all to love Dad Haggard. It was not clear because why that was the case because I don't think Dad Haggard loved us. But um, Dad Haggard died 
and I and uh, my father and my mother uh, took me to the funeral because we all loved Dad Haggard and it was open casket funeral and I thought I suddenly realized I was probably five or something I suddenly realized we were all getting up and filing by the casket and I was going to see Dad Haggard dead and I didn't but my father picked me up just as I was getting to the casket and uh, I didn't want to see him but I looked at him he had never looked better <laughs> and they had, I mean we were poor folks and and he had a big red sash that they put on with Elmer's glue with sparkles that said eternity is now <laughs> Uh, uh, you know, I don't recommend any of that. <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, I mean, uh, how to, um, uh, how to avoid, um, the, um, uh, suggestion, they're not really dead. <laughs> they look better than they've ever looked. Um, is uh, something that the church needs to uh, be uh, pretty clear about in terms of what funeral home directors do. And uh, I, I know that may seem, you know, um, kind of petty, but I think um, it's, it's um, very important that um, we understand that life after death just we're really dead and that whatever our life is after death like our life now is gift it's gift God will give us a life that hopefully has some continuity with who we have been but we cannot imagine what that means and that that um, is a great thing to know that I will not be condemned to being the enemy of God I've always been. Does sometimes the, the sort of theological language of life after death get used as a way of avoiding death itself. So when I feel that we have to insist, as Christians, we really do believe we die. We, we definitely believe that. But there are some people who think what we're saying is that somehow there's a door and, you, you, you know, all that right. sort of type of stuff. And it's, death isn't really death. Right. Well, um, I, uh, here I think some of the language about the eternality of the soul is deeply uh, deceptive. Only God is eternal. We're not. <laughs> and we don't... 2 Timothy 6.16. Right. And, you know, uh, we, we're going to... Goodness, I, I wish I was still the fundamentalist I was raised to be where I could remember that. But... <laughs> but... but, but no the, one's ever accused me of that, I can right, tell you that. But, uh, but uh, the, um, uh, what I mean um, uh, by 
I mean, it's not like we have something in us that puts God under a bind to do something with. Life is before death and after death all about what God chooses to do with us. And we have every confidence that God wants us to be God's friends. We know that because as Sister Frances so eloquently said, we have Jesus to help us know that. So, I mean, the kind of speculative notions about eternal life and about eternal soul, to put the most negative spin on it, it's pagan. <laughs> it's just pagan. And um, we, uh, as Christians, are often tempted to underwrite certain pagan presumptions that uh, are not disciplined by the gospel. I once heard a little boy talking about his dog who had died. And his comment was, do you know, he left his skin behind. But on a more serious uh, level, in Helen House and in Douglas House, we have an extra bedroom which can be kept cold. In Helen House, it's called the little room. In Douglas House, for reasons I won't go into now, it's called the starfish room. But it's because of a friendship I had before Helen House opened with an Irish mother whose little girl died and I was staying with them. And after she died, no funeral director, clergy person, or doctor was going to persuade her that her child's body should be taken away then and there. She kept her in her own room. She did everything to perfection for her, washed her, dressed her, brushed her hair, arranged the toys, arranged the flowers, arranged the candles, had music playing. And people came and went over the next days until finally she lifted her child's body into the coffin and we followed to the church for the service. And I thought in a horrendously imperfect world, this is about as good as it can be. And so we have these rooms in Helen House, which the families can make their own, however they want it to be, that's fine. And people sometimes say to me, um, <laughs> don't you ever have a miracle in Helen House? Kind of as if to suggest we've got it all wrong, which in some ways we have, I'm sure, but we do our best. But yes, I want to say, we have lots of miracles every day, every week. And I think probably the most miracles happen in the little room or in the starfish room because it's holy ground. Here you are meeting, it's the meeting point of life and death, I guess. And I remember being in the little room with a couple who I was warned, um, actually by Sheila Cassidy, who I think was here last week, <clears throat> She referred them and she said, whatever you do, don't use the G word because they'll run a mile. So I promised I wouldn't. And we became good friends and finally their little boy died. <clears throat> and in due course, they were ready, carried him to the cot in the little room. And a few hours later, I was there with them. And after some silence, the father said, look, he's smiling. And it was the first and only time they saw their baby son smile. We were there again two, three days later, and the father said, it's empty. 
It's gone. And it was the facial expression which had changed. There was no expression. And it was as if it was an acknowledgement that whatever it was that had animated this tiny person wasn't there in the cot in front of us. Here was the outward clothing, if you like, of this little person that they had cherished and loved and wept over. But whatever it was that was his being wasn't there. And we didn't use the G word at all from start to finish, but we did talk a little bit about the chrysalis and the butterfly. And I, I always think, I can't cope with fluffy bunny rabbits and chickens and things at Easter. I, I, it doesn't mean anything to me. But the butterfly, as a, a symbol of resurrection, does because of this thing of the chrysalis, for whatever reason, has served its purpose so quickly and is left behind and it will disintegrate, it will fade. But new life has emerged and tantalizingly has gone beyond our reach, beyond our sight. But it is new life. I'd expect you to have a little bit of a problem with yeah, I don't, with like, that. I don't like crystals or butterflies. But, but I, 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 um, I'm not trying to generate disagreement up here, cause, but um, perhaps this is a point at which I get you to, to talk a little bit about that. I, I remember when um, I was a curate being really quite shocked and doing loads and loads of funerals, which I did when I was a curate, shocked out about the people who say they don't believe in God, uh, but they do believe that Uncle Jimmy is looking down on them from the sky. So they believe in the eternity of the, the soul, but they don't believe in God. Is that what you meant when you talked about paganism? Yeah, it yeah. is. Um, um, I, um, I, think, I think people have... Um, God intends to kill us all in the end. Um, uh, and that's not bad news. Um, uh, that um, God is God and we are not. And that's good news. And the idea that somehow or the other um, we can uh, project that the human has standing over against God in a way that um, we can uh, ensure our continued memory um, that we're just always there somehow or the other uh, strikes me as a deep form of unfaith. And uh, I know that may sound quite um, harsh, but uh, how not to underwrite the kinds of sentimentality that are so tempting exactly because we've forgotten that God is God and we are not. I wonder if I could shift us a bit um, because we've got loads of questions and uh, rightly so um, about the sort of debate that we're having at the moment in this country and throughout Europe I suppose on assisted dying and euthanasia generally and I expect you to have strong views on that subject. Well, the great Cicely Saunders, the founder of the modern hospice movement, used to say that hospice care is the answer to euthanasia. And it was her belief that if you could control distressing symptoms, 
it would enable the sick person, the dying person, to finish unfinished business, to have conversations which perhaps they hadn't had before, and eventually to die with dignity. And I'm thinking of a lovely young lady who, who died in Douglas House about 10 days ago. She was passionately fond of animals. So in the last three weeks of her life, we had a kitten, we had a puppy, we had a rabbit, we even had a Shetland pony. There's a lovely photograph of a muzzle just over the edge of the bed. But her final request was, you know what I'd really love? Could we have a penguin? <laughs> and one of our amazing doctors, out of a hat somewhere, produced a penguin. And um, she died a few hours later. What did you ask me? Assisted suicide, <laughs> euthanasia. I love talking about penguins. I think that's fascinating. Fascinating. But, so the whole thing this about... Was a, this was about finishing unfinished business. Yeah, she yeah. wanted a penguin and she got her penguin and she died happy. Um, leaving behind, of course, uh, indescribable grief. But, but there's a sense in which it was, for whatever reason, a life complete. Um, I mean... Death by somebody's hand, whether it's your own hand or somebody assisting you, so often leaves behind so many unanswerable questions. Um, I don't know. I, I, I can understand if the sick person is not given um, the care that they should be given and the help that they should be given. Um, medically, spiritually, psychologically, whatever. But I think, you know, in the hospice movement, we, we want to be able to help people to die naturally, um, with dignity, free of pain, and able to finish unfinished business. I, um, um I think Sister Francis is the alternative to assisted dying. Uh, I, um, I certainly think that that's right. I, uh, and I, the development of the hospice movement has been a great gift. I do think, as I suggested in my earlier remarks, that there is a distinction between putting to death and not prolonging the dying process. And those are matters of judgment that oftentimes are very hard to make. Um, uh, that is what it means uh, not to prolong the dying process. What I fear is uh, the language of, um, uh, of euthanasia or assisted dying. And, and it's, uh, I mean, euthanasia just means a good death. Uh, you know. Uh, but um, uh, but I do not believe we should think of our lives as having a natural desire to live. I prefer to put it in the language that as recipients of the gift of life, we give one another our deaths as a way to not have those that love us think that they need to put us to death because they are compassionate. Uh, it, we, we have an obligation to live 
as a way to gesture all the gifts of others that have made our lives possible. So we do not officiously try to end our lives in a way that those that are left have to explain why it was that we thought we had to take our lives. I mean, if you think about, I know, I mean, Tolstoy said at the beginning of Anna Karenia, um, 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 all happy families are the same, all unhappy families are different. I think that's an insufficient view of happiness, but it is true that all suicides are different. But, and, and euthanasia is a form of suicide, I think, um, and that what, um, it, what I think in our time, however, there are two determinative forms of suicide. One is the suicide of abandonment. People and the death of a, euthanasia is a form of abandonment. People are so absolutely alone that they might as well be dead and they do die and do kill themselves. The other form of suicide is what I call a suicide of the metaphysical I gotcha. Namely, our lives are always filled with I gotcha games. I did this for you, you need to do that for me. Suicide is the ultimate I gotcha. What are you going to do? And, what, and, and, and I raise that. I know there is some distinction between suicide and euthanasia, but oftentimes it may, people die in a manner and try to ask you to help them die in a manner that makes our memory of them hard to sustain. So everything has to do with the kind of remembrance we're able to give through the way we die in good communities. And of course, oftentimes you can say, but those good communities don't exist, good families don't exist, which should be a reminder, hey, we gotta start thinking about this now. We gotta start living this way now, if as a matter of fact, we are to be able to die in a manner that we can be happily remembered. So I don't, I, I think, um, and one other thing, I mean, this, the development of assisted dying is going to put a terrible strain on um, medicine. Um, um, when um, I was once giving a lecture at the University of Chicago Medical School and they just had abortion the week before and the physicians had decided that, uh, the young residents had decided that uh, if someone asked them to perform an abortion, patient autonomy, they would do it. And I said, well, what happens if you're rotating through the ER and um, someone is brought in and they've, they've tried to kill themselves by jumping in to Lake Michigan and it's in the winter and because the water's very cold, they were able to be rescued though they were unconscious and they had a big plastic sheet on their, on their um, chest that said, um, uh, I am perfectly uh, in, um, uh, my mental health is perfect uh, here's a statement of my psychiatrist testifying that I'm completely sane. 
I've been reading Seneca my whole life and this is my way of, of establishing autonomy in my life, so please do not resuscitate. And I asked these young physicians what would they do and they said, well, well of course we'd resuscitate. And I said, well, um, why would you do that, patient autonomy? And they said, well, we're in the life-saving business. <laughs> And I said, what right do you have to impose your role specifications on this patient? Now, what you begin to see is what a, um, a fragile relationship between community expectations about what it means for physicians to always act toward us in a manner that they do no harm. And that that, how to sustain that trust between patient and physician once you get into the business of assisted um, uh, uh, dying is going to be a very difficult business. We've got about 10 more minutes and um, I think perhaps um, I'd like to ask um, us to think a little bit about what a good death looks like because that's something that people do talk about sometimes. Does that phrase have any sense for you? Um, yes, but it depends what one means by good. I mean, I think back to my old lady that I talked about at the very beginning, the 92-year-old, who just was ready to die and died so peacefully and seemingly easily. Um, that was a, a good death. Uh, I don't know. I mean, death isn't always pretty. Um, I don't know. Let's let's um, see what Stanley says. Um, I was once um, um, I, I was on sabbatical at Georgetown Medical School in Washington D.C., and there was um, an elderly lady who was on dialysis, and um, her son and daughter-in-law took wonderful care of her, but she had to come in from quite a distance twice a week for dialysis. And um, uh, she decided um, that um, she did not want to continue on dialysis. And of course, in um, a research medical center, no one gets to decide that they don't want to continue something, so they sent in the psychiatrist uh, to see if she was um, um, uh, mentally okay. And they, they cleaned her out first to make sure it wasn't uremic poisoning talking. And I was, I, I just was privileged to be present at that time. And after talking to the psychiatrist for a while, she said, look, young man, uh, I uh, was raised on the Baltimore Catechism and I've always lived that way and I've always voted Democratic. I'm ready to die. And now, <laughs> now I, um, uh, I, um, I think that that, and they let her, uh, and that was a, a, a good death. I think that a good, I mean, as I'm 70 years old, I'm beginning to realize that death is not a theoretical possibility even for me. I regard it as a great privilege um, to live in a manner that my body is beginning to fail uh, so that I have to come to the discipline of learning how to die. 
that's a great privilege that some of us are given. Um, not all people have that uh, uh, privilege. And I would like a good death, you know, I mean, in terms of Kubler-Ross's categories, hell, I've always lived an angry man. I want to die an angry death. <laughs> And um, I mean, I, I think that's what my friends would expect of me. And, um, uh, uh, and I hopefully that will be uh, happily remembered. A good death is when you're part of a community in which your dying is commensurate with the way you've lived. And, um, uh, and there are many good deaths. There will be many and various good deaths where um, uh, we uh, uh, celebrate uh, those lives um, through, um, um, uh, through uh, the liturgy of the church. So that's what I think is good. So if you've been at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified, would you say that was a good death? And not now, uh, but 2,000 I, years later, right. but then? How would you answer that? <laughs> <laughs> I, um, um, it was a good death because it saved us. That's retrospective. Yes, it is retrospective. Um, um, it wasn't a good death by... Um, it wasn't a good death in the sense that it was a death that was enacted against him. Um, um, and yet, he, that death was redeemed. I, I don't know any, I mean, it's a terrific question and I've never thought of it before about whether that was a good death. I think, you know, it's interesting to think about the martyrs in relationship to a good death. Uh, of course, the martyrs don't know they're martyrs until God tells them because they can't want to die as a martyr because they should want to avoid their murderers having the sin of their murder on their soul. So the martyr's task is always to escape. But if they are forced to die, it's a good death just to the extent that they have made our lives possible as those that inherit that great witness, which the word martyr means that God has received them into God's life in a way that gives us confidence in knowing how to die. I, I. Um, we're running out of time, and um, I just wondered if, I mean, I, it's been a real privilege for me to sit up here and, and to, to listen to you uh, both talking. I wonder if you'd like to just take some of that and have a minute to, to say something that that sums up some of what we've been talking about. I think we live in a culture where if you're suffering, it's quite likely that you're going to be lonely and isolated. 
community is scattered, extended family is scattered. There are lots of experts around, and usually if you've got a problem, you either are referred to an expert or somebody says you should be referred to an expert. And in this culture, what we've done, I believe, is to de-skill the next door neighbor, the colleague at work, the friend at school. Because we're led to think that you have to have done all sorts of trainings and diplomas and all sorts of things to actually come alongside offering companionship. And I'm reminded of the walk to Emmaus, the two walking along sorrowful and a stranger joins them and says, why are you sorrowful? And they say, you're the only person in this region who doesn't know the events of these last days. And the stranger talks through the scriptures, but they don't recognize him. And then it's evening and they draw into the place where they're going to stay and they invite the stranger to stay with them. And the stranger takes bread, that very ordinary, everyday substance. And he blesses it and he breaks it. And it's in the breaking of the bread, this ordinary thing, that their eyes are opened and they recognize him. And I believe that each of us here, whatever our walk of life, is called to journey, to walk the walk at different times in our lives with, for people, with people who are having a hard time. And it's my profound belief that if we journey hand in hand with another, whether we're the one who's in pain or the other person is in pain, it isn't two of us who walk that road. There is a third who joins us, often unseen, often unrecognized. And it's about bread, our ordinary everyday selves offered to that other. I think it's very hard to be in the presence of those in the process of dying for whom we cannot do anything. When you go to visit someone who's sick that you care a great deal about, possibly they're in the hospital, you always say, can I roll up your bed? Can I fix your pillow? You need to do something. It's quite understandable. And that's why we almost despise those who are dying for who we cannot do anything. And we fear them and we want to be away from them. But we can do something. It's called prayer. We can pray and prayer is often just, as Sister Frances so eloquently puts it, just presence. Just presence. Because through prayer, God is present. And that's what I believe makes it possible for us to be able to die in the presence of one another in a way that defeats the loneliness that otherwise is so compelling in our lives. Helen House, a collection will be taken for as you go out. Please give generously. Ladies and gentlemen, Stanley Howe, Sister Frances Dominica.